Welcome to another episode of Pet Talk Podcast, the official podcast of Alicia Pet Care Center. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the office manager and marketing social media manager of the Animal Hospital. And today we're going to bring in a couple of our doctors again to discuss some topics. These were brought to us, I believe one was via email and another was brought in-house a discussion that we had post-visit with uh, one of our clients in the lobby and we kind of talked about bringing it up on the podcast for more people to be able to benefit from the discussion. So we will bring the doctors in and talk about those topics and hopefully you are entertained as well as getting some good information for you and your pets, uh, either dog or cat. We are going to be talking about issues for dogs and cats today. So with no further ado, let's bring in the doctors. All right, so today for our episode, we are having in Dr. Wheaton and Dr. Foreman to discuss the topics that have been brought to the table by some clients through social and emails. Uh, Welcome, doctors. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, We will start off with the first topic, uh, which came to us in a question from uh, Susan, who asked, how often she should be bathing her dog uh, as far as how much is too much um, and like how little is too little. Like she doesn't want, she wanted to find that balance of, uh, she wanted to know how little is too little as far as she, you know, she doesn't want to let her dog get too dirty, but she doesn't want to be overdoing it. And a side note, we have this come from another client Um, who is a beach-going client with their dog very frequently, and they wanted to know if they were bathing their dog too much because they are going to getting their dog all sandy and they are bathing them basically every day when they come home from the beach. So uh, you guys can talk about that side. All right. So you bring up a couple good points and very common questions, I think, that, that we get, especially from new dog owners. Um. And I think, you know, what I tell people with puppies that obviously are going to end up getting dirty, they're not necessarily going to be making proper choices out in the yard, etc. They like to get dirty. Um, You may have to bathe your puppy maybe even every other day for a little while because if you're crate training them and they're going to the bathroom in their crate or they're just getting into trouble outside, you may need to truly bathe to survive because the dog smells um, from whatever it's rolling in or or coming in contact with. You may have to bathe relatively frequently. So that leads to the first thing that I think we should address, which is how much is too much? Can we bathe the dog too much? Can we overbathe our dog? So there's a very common myth out there that I think originated from a time when we didn't really understand skin problems in dogs very much. And that time you know, really is probably up to about 20 years ago. And some things that were happening around that time period is every single dog had fleas because we had no super drugs that actually worked. So every dog was dealing with fleas in, in a, in a flea environment, let's say. And a lot of dogs were itchy and we really truly as veterinarians, certainly 25 years ago and beyond Um, We had a very poor understanding of allergic dermatitis in dogs, um, an allergy called atopic dermatitis and how it worked and what the problems were that the dogs were dealing with and how to parse out 
what's um, what's flea allergy, what's an environmental allergy, what could potentially be coming from uh, improper ingredients in food. And this really, I think, relates back to our challenge as humans to connect the dots. So what I think a lot of people were witnessing back then were itchy dogs that had allergies of some sort. Probably all of them had some degree of flea exposure and itchiness related to fleas. And most of them were on foods that had um, grain ingredients that can increase itch. And some of them had atopic dermatitis. And so a lot of there were a lot of itchy dogs out there to the point of uh, now we have people, I think, come in that have had uh, experiences with dogs back in that time period where they sort of assume that there's a normal level of itch for all dogs. A normal amount of itching for dogs is zero. So when you have an itchy dog, you have an itchy dog usually from allergies. Uh, could be an allergy to parasites like in flea allergy, but you end up with a dog that has dermatitis, inflammation of the skin, and that inflamed skin is going to flake off in larger pieces. Just like if you you know, have some degree of a eczema condition or psoriasis on a human, you're going to have these large flakes of skin that are not flaking off appropriately. So you're going to see physical dander on the pet. So then you put the, the connect the dots with human reasoning that because the dog has dry looking skin, that is why it's itchy. So that is the opposite way that those dots should be connected. The dog actually has itchy skin from allergies. And that is why the inflammation of its skin is making its flakes fall off like they are in bigger pieces so that you can actually see the dander. So it's not dry skin causes itchiness. It's itchiness causes dry skin. And so that all got wrapped in with the frequency of bathing. Um, So you're going to have back in that time period, a lot of dogs with itchy skin that have dander that are getting bathed in whatever frequency. And so really easy for someone to get super confused. So in my 20 years of experience, I definitely have not witnessed uh, a single case where I thought this dog is being bathed far too often and that is their problem. They have itchy skin because they are being bathed incorrectly or too frequently, or they're being bathed with the wrong kind of generic shampoo. And that generic shampoo is you know, causing them to have irritation in their skin. Really, truly, like almost every itchy dog is going to be an allergy dog unless it has a skin mite or a parasite. So we don't see contact allergies in dogs very often at all. It's so exceedingly rare where in, in the human side, you know, you have people that have a latex allergy or they have an allergy to a lotion or something like that. We have very different skin than dogs and cats do. Um, they have fur, we have hair, they have a lot more of it. They have this big barrier. You know, again, they, they have lived a different life up to this point than we have, where we have been clothed for a lot of our recent history as humans and not dealing with, you know, straight direct, uh, exposure to the environment. So I think we have a more sensitive skin in general and dogs and cats don't have that. They're they're able to function outside and be dirty, quite honestly, and not have any ill effects from being truly just dirty. And they'll be able to survive and not have skin problems, you know, because they already have protections. They'll have allergies that will make them be itchy. But the the short answer to the story is I don't think that you can overbathe your dog if you're using a regular standard shampoo. And and I'll, I'll echo the point that um, 
I make to my clients a lot, which is what is the right shampoo to use? And my father was a veterinarian for his whole adult career. And I, um, his recommendation was to use joy liquid detergent. So my, I don't think that I need to necessarily endorse joy liquid detergent, but the point is, I don't think you really have to be fancy with your shampoos. I don't think you need to get the Paul Mitchell shampoo that's made for dogs and spend, you know, 10 times more than joy liquid detergent. You're really just looking to get the dirt off. You're not trying to do anything further with your bath unless Dr. Foreman, you're dealing with a case that requires a medicated shampoo. So I'll push it over to Dr. Foreman to kind of ask um, or answer that question, which is, you know, talk about talk about the different types of shampoos that are out there for dogs that might have a skin condition that might benefit from a shampoo. Yeah. So there are several varieties and brands, and essentially most of those brands are boiling on the factor. Does it have a you know, an antibiotic or an antimicrobial property, or does it have some type of antifungal uh, property to it? And there are various spinoffs of that. Yeah, sure, there's a fancy name to all those brands, but really when you break it down, it boils into those general categories. And yeah, when your dog does have a medical condition, some type of skin disease, whether it be allergies or infections or something like that, there are specific times that I do recommend the use of those particular types of shampoos in a certain degree of frequency. Um, usually I recommend once or twice a week uh, for a couple of weeks, and then we reevaluate and see how the skin is responding with the other treatments. So It all depends on ultimately what is your pet suffering from and the degree of is there an infection, what are we treating it for, and what are the other treatment options besides just shampoo therapy. There's some cool stuff actually out now for um, seborrheic dermatitis, which is one of those things that's kind of a little special variant that's relatively uncommon but in the the animals that have that they they can be really challenging um to manage just because they have this really waxy um skin coat and and debris and they're always really super flaky and they are really prone to getting skin infections and those animals have a very difficult path ahead of them in the old days at least but There are some new products for the seborrheic dogs that are really helpful. So that's just that's that's dander on a massive scale where it's, you know, literally like every day the dog is having these huge dander pieces that are coming off and the the skin and coat are very oily. It's it's pretty gross. It's a it's a pretty yucky skin problem. But there are some advances out there for that. It's kind of nice to be able to have an all-in-one. There are a couple all-in-one shampoos that are out there. So I think here at Alicia Pet Care Center, we we oftentimes will use something like that, a universal uh, medicated shampoo that, that truly is going to get a fungal infection, a bacterial infection, um, mild seborrheic dermatitis, et cetera. So it's kind of nice to have something like that. But there are some focused shampoos. There's a whole host of shampoos that we can dole out if we need to. So 
this may be a minority that would go into this side of it, but uh, what about cats? I know that they bathe themselves very frequently. Most cats bathe themselves very frequently, etc. Is there a point where a cat owner can be or should look at their cat and say, my cat needs a bath? Aside from the obvious, like my cat you know, got sprayed by a skunk or got, was outside and got splashed in the mud or whatever. Is there something that, uh, differs with dog and cat bathing at all? Well, there's a couple differences. One would be that you're probably going to get bit by a cat when you bathe it. (laughs) They don't really like getting bathed most of the time. Um, and cats, when they don't like things, they do sometimes lash out a little harder than a dog would. But I think um, a kitty cat is going to require a lot less bathing just because they are self-groomers. And dogs are really horrible self-groomers. We have people come in all the time with their itchy pets, uh, dogs, I should say, itchy dogs that are licking their feet, rubbing their muzzles, licking their undersides. And the owner will present those animals to us potentially and say that they groom themselves like a cat. Well, there is no dog that grooms themselves like a cat. So just to segue on your question, uh, Timothy, if you have a dog that grooms itself like a cat, it's itching itself. It's scratching itself. It's it's scratching an itch in the only way that it can. It's not cleaning itself because it wants to be clean. Dogs are not that way, even if we think that we have a dog who's very meticulous about its uh, appearance. That's not what's happening. So... On the cat side, they do a really good job of, of cleaning themselves most of the time. But I think the two things that I uh, think are predisposing factors to a cat that does not do well with self-grooming and maybe needs a little extra help is it's a cat that's overweight, um, which those cats that are overweight frequently have a difficult time um, grooming themselves. So they en- may end up with mats on their back, matted hair. They may end up with a lot of dander, but I think a lot of times that dander emanates from the wrong kind of food, which is a big reason why most of our cats get overweight as well. So when you're feeding a strict carnivore uh, grain-based diet that has very little animal content in it, it's not going to do well. It's like a cow eating a chicken burger for lunch. It's the exact opposite nutrition of what they're built to get. And they have gone through this, this time period, these eons of their time on the planet, Um, eating a specific way and then all of a sudden we feed them the opposite they're not going to do well their skin is going to suffer their skin you know we talk about the skin being the window into the animal if the skin and coat is not healthy you can make a judgment oftentimes that the inside of the animal is not healthy that doesn't necessarily stand with allergies but with a cat that's overweight that has a bunch of dander and greasy coat most of the time that cat's going to be on a dry grain-based food eating the wrong food getting too many carbohydrates, getting too overweight because it's not eating right and it's eating potentially a little bit too much for itself and then it can't self-groom. So those cats you know, actually would benefit from having some degree of um, shampoo therapy or potentially some of these sprays for seborrheic dermatitis. But most of the time, honestly, you can fix it with other things besides bathing. Um, but in the short term, you know, you could do a bath and you could do a medicated bath on your cat as well. It's just a lot harder to have them be a compliant, happy patient that's not going to freak out. My cat hates to be bathed. Um, I think that was the last time that I got scratched by a cat was when I was bathing my cat in the kitchen sink about a month ago. 
And I had to do that because he had a little kind of bathroom accident on his back end and required a bath. He's not very good, my own cat Grover, at grooming himself. If he gets any bit of residue on his hind end from either the litter box or from himself, he's just not very good about cleaning him up, himself up. So he brings it upon himself, but he does not like it. So you might want to look into a cat squatty potty. I think that is a great idea. It's a really good invention. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about cat squatty potties. <laughs> Maybe we can get squatty potty as a um, sponsor. As a sponsor. Yeah, advertiser I think so. for our podcast. Very good idea. Before we moved on, one of the things that we talked about was an animal that might have been skunked that might need a bath. So that's a special bath. A lot of times I still hear nowadays people talking about how they're going to bathe their dog or cat in tomato juice because the dog got skunked. And that is definitely not the right thing to do. It's not going to really work. Um, There is a recipe which I don't have on hand right now that very easily found on the Internet. It's a a recipe that involves hydrogen peroxide, baking soda, um, regular soap, and it it works amazing. Um, The important thing with this is that it needs to be put on the animal dry and allowed to air dry. So... You, you don't want to like do the full bath first and you don't want to rinse it all off. So um, that's a really important thing. If your dog or cat did get sprayed by a skunk, you want to look that up and not use tomato juice. So going on to the whole grooming side and uh, personal appearance of your pet, uh, we do have some items that came to us from uh, clients as well as some outside people on Twitter uh, regarding how people are taking care of their pets, what is going too far as far as uh, trying to make their pet look faddishly cute or whatever. You know, there's a lot of, um, I have recently seen as well, a lot of things with hair color of dogs. Um, You know, I think some of the ones that I've seen are kind of the purse-carrying uh, dog crowd, you the Paris Hiltons of the world. <laughs> I won't say the last name that starts with a K, and we all love to keep up with them, don't we? Seeing some of those things, and I know we've seen some of the extreme cases of people doing things uh, here in our own hospital, but uh, would you doctors like to speak in regards to the complete rainbow um, and spectrum of fun to harmful ways of making your pet stand out in this world. Dr. Foreman. Well, certainly, yeah, we can do a lot to our pets to make them look cute and things like that. We've seen, you know, people using hair colors and, you know, benign things like that. And that's all good and probably relatively safe. Uh, where it goes to the extreme is like things like you wouldn't put in your own hair bleach, those types of things to turn their fur color white or uh, any other color. I think you can take things to a certain extreme and hopefully just, you know, if if that is your cup of tea to, you know, make your white animal have green hair or 
for St. Patrick's Day or whatever, um, then, you know, try to be as safe as you can and look at the ingredients and say, yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's relatively safe. If you would use it on your hair, I think it would be relatively safe. But I wouldn't go dumping bleach on my dog's hair. Um, painting nails, a lot of people do paint their dog's nails. And that's all fine. I don't think that's very harmful at all. But then, on the other hand, we've seen some animals come in, you know, that they're at a much more extreme level. Things like cropping the ears or making the ears stand up. Uh, That is an extreme case where I've seen some owners want to do that themselves. So they try different methods to to get the ears to stand up and again have no medical background for doing those types of things i've seen dogs come in that you know maybe inadvertently speaking the dog gets a collar put on as a puppy and then the owners fail to expand that collar as the dog gets bigger so i've seen you know dog collars get embedded into you know, their fur coats and skin and cause some, some pretty bit major lacerations in their skin. So you get a lot of extremes here. You just try to be safe and use common sense for what you want your dog to look like. Um, dogs are pretty happy being just dogs the way that they were. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, um, one of the most extreme cases that we saw like this, was maybe a year ago, year and a half ago here at Alicia Pet Care Center. Uh, we had a dog that came in that the owner, for whatever reason, I can't remember exactly why, but they had put rubber bands on the tips of the ears. Um, I believe that they were trying to do something about getting the dog's uh, ears and the hair on the ears out of the dog's face or something along those, those lines. But unfortunately, you can't do rubber bands very easily on um, people that people and animals that have um, extremities that can then lose blood supply. So unfortunately, the ears, ear tips on these dogs um, lost blood flow and just died. And those ears had to be surgically remedied. And I think the entire um ear flap on on both ears were removed surgically on that dog so a very unfortunate circumstance that can come out of things that are just you know kind of common sense don't do this type of thing so i'd be careful with rubber bands or anything like that a scrunchy we've seen scrunchy issues on dogs like that same kind of thing before um and just you know the the do-it-yourself situation that goes on in veterinary medicine is a little bit um, at an extreme, I think right now, and you just have to be careful about some of these things that you do, um, bandages and, and things like that, that really they're very easy to mess up. And the consequence as we have done, I think probably one amputation per year for the last three or four years on home bandage jobs that, um, might've just been honestly for a dog that tore its toenail off and the owner did the bandage at home, did it way too tight, and we ended up having to actually amputate the entire leg because they cut off blood supply to the foot. So just be careful with those kind of things. Um, another thing that is um, something that I would be very concerned with 
at least it's a, a good topic of conversation is um, doing a tail docking. So tail docking and ear crops, um, those are actually illegal in many European countries. We still, because we have our freedom in America, we still allow a lot of this stuff to happen. Um, but those are sort of antiquated breed requirements and then turned into, you know, sort of the standard appearance for the breed. So think about the boxer with the ears that stand up real tight. Um, the boxer also a great example, unfortunately, of a dog that gets a lot of these kind of unnecessary surgical procedures, tail docking the boxer's tail. You know, these are things that were done a long time ago, basically because of the reason why the dog was used. So if the dog was out and it was a working dog, you wouldn't want the dog to have a big, long tail that was, you know, whacking everything in sight. And then you get a cut on the tail that doesn't heal. And so a lot of these things had a purpose back in the old days. And nowadays they don't really have a great place in veterinary medicine, which is why you'll find it's very difficult to actually find a veterinarian to do ear crops or tail dockings because they're they're not really something that most veterinarians would support. So one of the other things that people will oftentimes think about cosmetically um, for their dogs typically is removal of dew claws. So the dew claw is the thumb of the foot, I suppose. It's the first digit and it doesn't hit the ground when dogs walk. So it does not self wear. Um, it's prone to getting too long. And if it's too long, just like any other nail, it's more likely to break off. And so in the old days, again, um, breeders or whoever had the dogs that were um, being born would take the dew claws off, typically in the first couple days of life on these puppies. Um, typically that would be done without any anesthetic or pain control or any aftercare whatsoever. So it's definitely not something that our current society and our current outlook as veterinarians really can uh, endorse. But I think the bigger issue is we see torn nails all the time and there's equal odds on what nail is going to be torn. It's not frequently the dew claw. It is occasionally the dew claw, but I think it really matches up to the overall frequency of just what, you know, you have five nails on each paw, you've got a 20% chance of it being nails one through five. So uh, it's not something that we really endorse here, but we will do it if it's really desired by the owner. It should not be done without anesthesia or pain control or anything like that. So typically that means that it's being done at the time of a spay or neuter. And if it's being done on a dog of that age and size, as a spay or neuter kind of situation, then it's going to be done totally differently from the way that um, it would be done at home by a breeder. So Dr. Foreman can talk about what that would actually entail. So, yeah. Um, so basically, if your dog or pet needs its dew claw removed for a specific reason, we definitely take that into account and consider it and discuss it. Um, so we do anesthetize them under a general anesthetic, uh, and we will go on ahead and surgically remove that digit, which is basically taking off that, that toe, that part of the bone, uh, and, uh, stitch it back together and, 
recover him or her and uh, make sure that your animal it gets proper antibiotics or pain control. Uh, that's a big important thing. You wouldn't want your finger to be, you know, chopped off and you don't have any pain control. So um, we want to make sure that their pain level is controlled very well. Um, and again, these are done in specific situations. Um, essentially, you know, if I do see a dog that comes in and he or she has a dewclaw, I say, oh, uh, Fluffy has a, a, a dewclaw there in the back. Um, be sure to get, always get it trimmed because sometimes that gets overlooked at the groomers. Like they'll miss it just because it's not sitting right in front of them. And a lot of times we can alleviate the problems just by having a properly trimmed nail uh, in the first place without any complications of them ripping it or tearing it or things like that. But if it does need to be removed, we always do consider, uh, yes, we can offer this service to you, but we try to do the best job and make sure your pet is comfortable. So that's basically a toe amputation, right? Yes. So that's important to understand that it's, you know, removing dew claws is amputating a toe. So we, we don't go into that lightly. We want to make sure that everybody understands that. I think that covers the topics that we had for the two of you today. Uh, I appreciate both of you coming in to sit down and spend some time with us for this episode. And you can, you can say you're welcome. It's been thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah. I really, I enjoy sharing all of our wisdom and um, allowing our clients to actually get a little free advice and getting to know the voices of Alicia Peck Care Center. Uh, so we will have another episode primed and ready for you guys to listen to after this. Make sure that you are getting your questions into us either via our Facebook, which is Alicia Pet Care Center. Uh, we are on Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat, all as APCC Vet. So you can send us anything by that, or you can send us an email to wecare@mypetsdoctor.com. That's wecare@mypetsdr.com, and I'll make sure that we get that into the mix for our doctors to uh, discuss. So thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. Yes, make sure. That is a very good point, Dr. Wheaton. It's very important that you go and find us on iTunes. It's great for uh, our podcast to get seen by more people and for us to be in that uh, category that is right up front for the iTunes users. So find our uh, podcast there on iTunes. Subscribe. Leave us a review. We love that feedback, and it also... The reviews also help it be in the, what is it, the new and noteworthy uh, category there on iTunes. Hey, Serial, we're coming for you. <laughs> he means it. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, and I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. <laughs>